I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Lantern Rouge Cycling Podcast. My name is Benji and today I'm here alone because Patrick is unavailable, unfortunately, but he'll be back tomorrow. So you don't need to worry. Your, uh, your favorite Australian will be back on the podcast tomorrow. That's for certain. But we're going to be talking about La Vuelta, obviously. Stage 19, a stage that is a sprint stage from La Bagnezza to Iskar. This stage is, it's a simple sprint stage. We're going to go over the parkour very quickly and the parkour is 177 kilometers. It's basically, basically fully flat. And we've got an intermediate sprint, a bonus second sprint with roughly 20 kilometers left in the stage, which if the break is caught, there might be a sprint for bonus seconds, but it's not like it's going to change a spot in GC based on what I remember from the GC before the stage started. But when it comes to the intermediate sprint, Rose might be interested in collecting some points. So we'll see if the break is called by then or not. But before we dive into the actual stage, I want to give you a quick thank you for the support on our, on our merch that we launched at the start of La Vuelta because our shirts have been doing pretty well. And I want to thank you guys for that because your support is what keeps us going, what keeps us motivated to, to try and deliver the best possible podcast on a daily basis. And if you want to get merch from us, then you can go to shop.lanternrouge.com and you can, you can pick up something there. But anyway, let's get into the stage now. Initial breakaway. I didn't really see a, a major breakaway coming on this stage as we've had these sprint stages in this race where you had a, an Andro Kamika breakaway or like two riders up the road, three riders up the road. And there's still this like this vague theory for every sprint team because soup won a sprint stage milano won a sprint stage groves isn't dominating every single sprint even knowing he's looking he's looking pretty good but he's not dominating everything so if we take a look at the options there then sprinters might say to themselves yeah i think i've got a chance why not why not not go in the breakaway and focus on the sprinter instead and a lot of teams did that again there were quite a few teams going in the breakaway though for this time not a two-man breakaway Clément Davy from Groupama. He's like an okay time trialist, but he's used as an early ruler domestique for the team usually. But in all honesty, I kind of feel like he's one of those French riders that is in that French carousel where he's in World Tour because he's just moving through World Tour teams. I don't think he necessarily moves the needle in World Tour, but he's got a time trial skill, so he's pretty solid in the breakaway, I'd say. Paul Apera, second breakaway rider, another Frenchman. Agé Desert, 23 years old. Some punchy skills. I reckon he was top five in La Polymore Normande just before the Vuelta, which is kind of a, it's a, a French one-on-one uh, -on -one race, if I recall correctly. Fourth in that race, good result there. Eh? So he's got talent. Mathias Libera, another Frenchman in the break. He was active in the breakaways in the Cowell Classics, if I recall correctly. I think in Omlope, for example, he might have been top 25 in the final result as well. So he was pretty good in that. And then the final breakaway rider was Mikael Schlegel, not a Frenchman, a Czech rider that currently rides for Caja Rural. I wonder how he speaks to the rest of the team there. Maybe no Spanish, maybe they talk English. I don't know. But he's, uh, he's riding uh, for Caja now, rode for Elkov. And he's kind of the, the Conti GC rider type. As in, I remember him winning or getting close to winning the Tour of Malopolska, a Polish Conti race, 
when he was still riding for uh, Elkov, which is that Czech Conti team. But anyway, he's now riding more the uh, the Portuguese circuit, the Spanish circuit, and the Vuelta as a follow-up now as well. But flat breakaways, that is what he uh, what he's doing in this race. And those those four breakaway riders, those riders, well, they're the they're the breakaway of the day, the Mickey Mouse breakaway of the day, and they didn't have a chance of winning the stage because the control behind was happening. The gap never went to an extreme length. Alpecin and UAE were the teams that were controlling, and Alpecin did that, as you'd expect, Osborne at the front, who's been doing that a lot this race, Jimmy Janssens as well, who uh, was like uh, a C-Tech Belgian time trialist. I might be underrating or overrating him with that, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. And Dolman Novak was also doing some work early on in the race for UAE, so it wasn't just Alpecin that was controlling this breakaway, so Molano looks... Looks like he was pretty happy to uh, to have another sprint for uh, Rui Oliveira to lead him out in. But this breakaway wasn't going to make it. And we saw that in the last like 30 kilometers that the gap was so minimal to the point that Alperson was starting to think we can actually catch these guys before the intermediate sprint because they were pulling pretty hard and they were doing that in the running towards that intermediate sprint with 20 kilometers to go. And we see those last breakaway riders up the road about five seconds before the peloton. And... Basically, two of the four breakaway riders say to themselves, well, I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> I think it was uh, Paul Lepera and Matias Leberry that kind of looked at each other and were like, we're, we're going to the peloton. I'm out. I'm on vacation. Anyway, Schlegel and Davi. It was mainly Davi that did the last push to kind of probably collect the combativity prize for tomorrow. Schlegel was on a few meters of him, but this actually influenced the intermediate sprint because Alpsen did have a lead out for Caden Groves. And... When Caden Groves launches his sprint, he's able to catch everyone except Davi. So he can't take the full pot of points here at his intermediate sprint. I don't think it will move the needle, but you never know. You never know at the end of the race. If he loses by one point, it's all Clément Davi's fault. But anyway, the breakaway was caught by that action. And we had some more skirmishes in the peloton. A few attacks directly after the break got caught. And I think Battistella was the one that slept up the road and kind of rode there for about let's say a good a good five kilometers from 18k to go to about 13k to go if i had to guess 10 seconds before uh in front of the peloton and that was destined to go nowhere you know what that is so the control was behind but it was notable that it wasn't just them riding that down directly as in alperson was trying to save some of the riders for the lead out and other riders did that as well and we kind of came to the last 10-ish kilometers when we saw the other sprinting teams be at the front of the peloton, really trying to uh, trying to make sure that the break gets caught, which was already happening, but also trying to keep their sprinters in position in the last 10 kilometers. So with 8k to go, Ineos was at the front for Filippo Ganna, and it's good to see the entire team of Ineos around Ganna. It's also kind of logical with the situation that they're in. Geraint Thomas, rumors of a broken rip. I'm pretty sure he said that on What's Securing uh, last night, but also like... They don't have other things to do much more outside of trying to get Ghana a stage win and maybe tomorrow they can try and get someone else a stage win. But that's kind of the goals they can still have left at this race. And we see Movistar also leading someone out. That is Lascano being at the front of the group with uh, Garcia Cortina. He hasn't been the best when it comes to the pure sprints in this race. And I haven't actually seen a godlike sprint from him in a while. I still vividly remember that Paris Nice stage he won, which was like a, a slight uphill sprint. I can't remember who he beat, but it might have been Sonny Colbrelli, if my memory serves me right. But that was a godlike sprint, and I was curious to see what 
he would do today with the entire Movistar team, except Moz and probably a rider surrounding Moz that were not helping him. But they were trying to keep him at the front, probably trying to keep Moz at the front as well in those final eight kilometers. Yumbo was also there. Bahrain was also there. Bahrain probably for Govicar and also trying to keep their GC riders in position. But when it comes to Yumbo, I'm wondering, like, if you're Yumbo for a second, imagine you're a team, you are Yumbo Visma, currently the best team in the sport, arguably, and you've got three riders in the top three of GC, and the fourth rider in GC is four minutes back, let's say that, Ayuso roughly. So is it more dangerous to keep your GC leaders at the front of the group, where crashes might occur, or keep them at the back of the group? And it seems like they were divided because Walter was keeping Kuzen Roglic, if I recall correctly, at the uh, right front of the peloton. And there was an image from the back with two Yumbo riders at the back of the peloton. And I wonder if Vingago was at the back of the peloton in that sense. So I'm curious if it might have been a better option, a safer option to stay at the back because you're not likely to lose four minutes if a crash happens and you're stuck behind it. But you can lose four minutes if your rider crashes out of the race right now. Then you can lose that third position in GC. So. I wonder if that's a risk worth taking. Maybe they looked into that. Maybe they didn't. That's just a thought I had when looking at that. But anyway, 2.5 kilometers to go. Still Ineos and Lascano at the front. And we're, we're, the last portion is super straight. So we're going to the last corner, basically. And there is still something that happens before the sprint starts. And we see that because EF starts moving up with roughly 1.2, 1.1 kilometers to go on the left side of the road for Marijn van den Berg. And... Also, Julius van der Berg, I reckon they were kind of both trying to do something today. They were moving on the left side of the road. And at this very moment, Ineos and Alpecin are kind of at the front. An Alpecin rider next to an Ineos rider. And I could have seen this wrong, but it looked like it was an Alpecin rider that looked over his shoulder and moved left as a consequence. He looked behind him over his shoulder and moved left as a consequence, just as EF was trying to pass, which caused the Alpecin rider to kind of panic because he was going to ride into the F rider. And he crashed and he caused a crash with multiple riders, including his sprinter, Caden Groves. And this is not the first time that we see a crash happen in the race because a rider that looks back and moves while looking back. It's probably inherently an automatic behavior that if you look back on your left side, that you kind of start moving to the left as you look back on your left side. But it's something that happens all the time. We saw it in the Giro. Remco basically did it in that crash that ended up uh, crashing him out, but also where he hit the Trek riders that passed him. That's exactly a similar scenario. And we saw that also in the, in the Tour de France with a UNOX rider. I don't know which UNOX rider it was. It might have been, a, I won't name a name just in case I'm wrong here, but that was a, a very similar scenario there. So it's a behavior that riders need to try and prevent when they're riding because it's actively endangering riders and Understand that it's sometimes the behavior to do that. It's useful to look back, but if you're riding 60k an hour in a, in, a, in a straight road, you probably won't want to risk it if you're at the front because that's the consequence. A crash like Grove's teammate crashing out here. So anyway, that crash to the side, that causes a breakup in the peloton, a split in the peloton. Like if I had to guess 30, 25 riders at the front, but it's three kilometer rule. So regardless of whether you're caught up behind that split or not, you're not going to lose the time that you are losing there. It's going to be uh, all settled in the same time as the front group. So no problem if a GC rider was behind the crash or not. That being said, we're heading to the sprint and it takes a while before we get to the actual shot from the front angle going into the sprint. Then it's EF that's at the front giving a lead out for Marijn van den Berg and the other EF guy. 
And I was thinking, okay, they've got one guy ahead of their sprinter, or is that second EF rider that's also looking like he's going to be sprinting at the end of the stage, also going to do anything here. And it kind of looked like the first rider ended his lead out. And when that first rider ended his lead out, the second rider moved backwards into the train, into the sprint train of Ineos, who was then at the front with Hajduk, leading out Ghana. And there was another EF rider on the other side. One of the two was Marijn van den Berg. And the Hajduk lead out was pretty good. He's sprinting in the middle though, so he's doing a lead out in the middle of the road, which means that he's not really protecting one side of himself and of Ghana. For example, if you're a lead out and you move to the barrier, for example, what you can do is you can move left, and therefore, Gana can basically sprint in between you and the barrier. And that way, you are protecting Gana on one side. By doing the lead out in the middle of the road, you're basically leaving both sides open. And Gana kind of has to hope that he doesn't get passed on one of the sides. So I reckon the lead out could have been done on one of the sides instead of in the middle of the road. And we see that when Gana launches from Hajduk's wheel, because Gana launches from Hajduk's wheel and he moves towards the barrier legally. He doesn't hinder anybody, he doesn't endanger anybody. And Garcia Cortina is in the wheel and he tries to pass on the left side of Ghana and then I saw the man behind him. Then I saw the man behind him. We haven't seen him in many sprints this race. We've spoken about him multiple times in this race as that one sprinter that you never see him. And then once he's there, there's one stage that he takes. And that is Alberto Dainese who comes out of the wheel of Garcia Cortina. And the second he was doing it, I thought he's going to be winning. Gana opened up early, so that influences that as well. He's in the win for a long time, but Dainese comes around at the perfect timing, passes all two of the other riders, and Dainese takes his stage with and congratulations, he keeps doing it. How, how can we let this guy keep doing this? Just being invisible this entire Grand Tour when it comes to sprints, and then winning a stage out of nowhere. He does it every single time. In, in Giro sprints, in multiple Giros he's done it. Now in the Velta as well, and the only thing you can do is congratulate him, and he's going to Tudor next year. So that's going to be interesting. Two years at Tudor, which it's a pro team. They want to move up. They got Trenton involved as well when it comes to a rider. Plenty of other riders joining Tudor. And here's where that goes. I think their goal is to try and secure a, uh, a Grand Tour wildcard. But I'm actually not sure if they will be able to do that. I haven't done the math with the amount of teams that can go to each Grand Tour. Which teams actually get each Grand Tour and which teams can be invited and which teams are likely to be invited. But that being said, Dainese's hit rate is not high, but when he does hit, he wins a Grand Tour stage. So can't complain there. Now, an important factor is, we said it earlier, in the uh, intermediate sprint, there was Groves that took, uh, the man took some points. And when it comes to the points after the stage, he's on 245 points. Remco Evenepoel after yesterday is on 192 points. So that's 53 points behind. I'm not 100% certain if tomorrow's finish line is 20 points or 30 points, plus the 20 points of the intermediate sprint. Regardless of what the amount of points is at the finish, Remco cannot get the green jersey at the end of tomorrow's stage. So Gross' intermediate sprint actually secured that, unless, unless Gross doesn't sprint in Madrid and Remco suddenly sprints like Tim Merlier. Groves' green jersey should be safe at the end of this Velta. That's how I, uh, how I feel, to be honest. So, um, that's the sprint. I can't say much more than that about the sprint. It's, it's cool to see that Ineos is surrounding Gena, that they give that chance, but it's also logical considering the situation. It was nice to see Garcia Cortina do a flat sprint at this level again, but then again, this level is also 
relative because this Velta does not have the the greatest level. If you do want to see a stage, a race with an actual good sprinting level, they had the Campions Cup from Vlaanderen in Belgium this uh, today, and we saw a sprint between Jakobs and Philipsen and Grunewijk in a really close sprint. I won't spoil the winner for you there, but it was a really close sprint. And hey, seeing the best sprinters in the world sprint against each other, that's always a a beauty. There's a uh, not much more to say about today's stage, so I'm going to jump into tomorrow's stage. Stage 20, Manzanares, El Real to Guadarrama, 207.8 kilometers. That's a lot of kilometers, and that does matter, and Jesus Christ, this parkour. Whoever invented the parkour of the stage was on crack when they did it, because it is climbs all over, and it's definitely not an easy parkour for, for anyone. And the curious factor is, when this parkour was announced, I thought this looked like a medium mountain raid stage because there's a climb at the start, so the breakaway can form on that climb. It's a 10 kilometer climb at 3.4%. Not entirely the hardest start to a stage, but it is a proper start to actually form a breakaway. And in between climbs, there's a maximum of, let's say, 15, 10 kilometers maximum. And sometimes there's no distance between climbs because the second climb comes after 30 kilometers. Cruz Verde, which is 7.1 kilometers, 5%. Then a 5-kilometer valley. Then we've got 8.8 kilometers at 4.2%, going straight into another climb that is 2.3 kilometers. Uh, then we've got another climb just at the bottom of that descent, again, of 5 kilometers at 5.5%. Then 3.9 kilometers at 6.2%. And I'd say there's multiple phases in this stage. You've got the breakaway formation on the first two climbs, the first 50 kilometers. And then you've got two potential jumping points that I not sure will be used as in the next 40 kilometers from 50 kilometers into the stage to 100 kilometers into the stage it's just a follow-up of four climbs that could be used to launch someone i don't expect it to happen considering the situation in gc i'll go into that in a second and then past the halfway point you've got that exact same four climb circuit basically happening again and that is from 100 kilometers to 150 kilometers and there's one thing there with 159 kilometers in the stage so roughly 49 kilometers left, where there is a 2.6 kilometer climb of 6.8%. Might be an option to go there. I don't know. But the last two climbs, the second last one, Puerto de la Cruz Verde, once again, the second climb in the race, basically repeated 7.3 kilometers, 3.9%, is with 27 kilometers to go and lands just before the final climb, which is the hardest, even though, like, we're saying the hardest, but it's still 6.6% at 4.5 kilometers. So, my theory when I saw this parkour the first time was this is a um this is a raid stage but without the launching point. The obvious launching point of this is a steep point to attack on. And there might still be attacks on the on the circuit area from 100 kilometers to the finish line, to 50 kilometers to the finish line, especially on the Alto de Robledondo. But I don't expect the major coup that we might have seen if GC was closer because if we take a look at GC, Kuz is in the lead, 17 seconds ahead of Vingega after what they did yesterday, losing some time with Vingega at the line to make sure Kuz can feel safe. Rogic on 108. Will we see action within Jambo Visma? I don't expect it. I uh, I see them rallying around Sepkaz once again, and I see them trying to control the breakaway formation once again in the same way that they did on stage 18. And... Afterwards, when the breakaway is formed, that breakaway is likely to win the stage, in my opinion. Unless there is some unexpected action from other riders in the, in the top 11, which is possible. I do expect that MQA Evenepoel to have full interest to try and win the stage. 
I think he's got a larger chance to do it from the breakaway than from the peloton. I've heard some rumors that he might consider doing it from the GC group, but if Yumbo doesn't control, who will is the question. And Ayuso's in fourth. He's basically three minutes behind Roglic. I don't expect him to do an all-out move to do that because he could lose his top five and then finish sixth or worse if he does that. So that's one thing. Landa, he's already in the top five. I'd expect him to play that defensively. Maybe he wants to move up to, to fourth on the last two climbs of the day, but I don't expect a mid-stage coup for that. Enrique Moss, interesting is that he's not in the top five, but Enrique Moss is also not the kind of rider where I see him attack with 100 kilometers to go or 70 kilometers to go. So if he tries to beat Landa, who's only 11 seconds in front of him, I'd expect him to do that on the last two climbs and not on a 70 kilometer to go climb with a, a major coup. And then Bora's the interesting one, because... If there's one rider here, I don't expect Aitobrooks to do a coup, to do a, like a major raid attack, but Vlasov could consider that because the man has top five the Tour de France before. Why does he care too much about a specific eighth spot in the, in the Vuelta? He needs to lose four minutes to lose his top 10 as well. So I reckon Vlasov might consider doing something in the same way that he tried to do yesterday, just before the, the final uh, Cruz Linares climb where he had that team attack with Bora. But... The interesting factor for me is that Steph Cross is 11th, 1 minute and 21 seconds behind Butrago, who's on 10th in GC. Cross might consider going in the breakaway to try and pass Butrago, and then Butrago might join him in the breakaway. And that might cause this effect of Almeida suddenly feeling threatened, where UAE might start pacing. So there's all these factors of people trying to secure their top 10, top 5 position that might play into, uh, into what happens tomorrow. But I expect... Uh, a breakaway battle, Remco versus Kemna versus uh, all those types of riders, Butrago maybe, if that happens, uh, just the positions between 11th and, and 25th, and Marc Soler. Marc Soler is, uh, is now 14th in GC, 33 minutes back after what he did on the Angluri stage. Nobody knows still why he did that attacking on the first climb, but he's there, so he might as well try and be in the breakaway, and there's a lot of riders like that that might be in the breakaway. Bardem, Max Poole might try it again. Um, are the climbs too much for Lascano and Gano? I'd say yes. There's too many climbs for that. The gradients are probably fine, but I'm not sure they can handle 20 climbs like that. So I guess that. So that's basically it when it comes to uh, tomorrow's stage, my expectations from that. There's one more piece of news that came up today. Jumbo Visma announced that they're going to be splitting up their cycling team and their speed skating team. Since 2014, if I recall correctly, the cycling team and the speed skating team had been under one entity within the Netherlands. And now they're dividing that because if you don't remember, Jumbo is stopping sponsorship for Jumbo Visma. So the, the supermarket chain is disappearing when it comes to their sponsorship. So... Both the uh, cycling part and the speed skating part is looking for new sponsors in that sense. And maybe they are doing this to try and figure out uh, their new sponsorship because the cycling team has grown so much that it's kind of an international brand now, while the speed skating team... Like, I know some stuff about speed skating because my wife had been a, a speed skater in the past for, uh, in the UK. And apparently in the Netherlands... There's commercial teams, like local commercial teams, while in most other countries, it's all about national teams doing the speed skating. So the market of speed skating in the Netherlands is much, much more sizable. So it's more Netherlands focused 
And as a consequence, I think the, the sponsorship proposition between the cycling team and the speed skating team is different. So either they found a sponsor already for the cycling team that doesn't like the speed skating part or doesn't care about that market, or they're trying to make it separate for that exact reason to attract a sponsor of that size, an international sponsor, to make it more uh, intriguing. So um, that's basically it. If you wonder why the Jumbo Visma, uh, why, why, why Jumbo is leaving, uh, I think it has something to do with the fact that the old founder of that company has unfortunately passed away at the end of 2022, and he was really the, the driving force between the cycling aspect of that. But all that aside, that's uh, something we need to monitor in the coming weeks, but I'm afraid that's it for today. I tried to carry this along. Let's hope it was an enjoyable experience for you. So that's about it for today. Stage 19 of La Vuelta is done, and I guess we'll see you tomorrow for uh, stage 20 of La Vuelta Ciclista España. A pretty cool stage on paper, but I'm not sure a lot will happen GC-wise. Anyway, we'll see. Ciao. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 